Well, we're going to take a little break uh, from our Roman study tonight. Uh, and uh, I, as I prayed for what we might be t- teaching and, and thinking about tonight, meditating, um, I believe the Holy Spirit spoke to me that there's so much going on right now in and around the world um, that we might want to revisit some of those things that will happen right before the rapture of the church. We want to make sure we're ready. And this has been talked about since the 70s. And um, when uh, the Jesus movement, the Jesus freaks, they call them, the Jesus people began in the late 60s and early 70s. Some of you old folk uh, were there, a few gray heads in here, including my own. And um, that drew, uh, drew into a movement that included many churches, including Calvary Chapel. So uh, as an introduction to that, um, we have seen a lot of things going on lately that I think we want to draw attention to uh, as we look at some patterns that will precipitate the rapture of the church and then, of course, what will come after that, which is called the Great Tribulation. The dramatic rise in what we can only be explained as satanic activity should awaken us to the time that we live in today. Likewise, the destructive nature of current global events Uh, should also remind us of what the Apostle Paul said would happen on earth during that seven-year tribulation period. In other words, the increased darkness of our days, well, on the one hand, a bad thing, of course, is a precursor to what will soon come, things will get much worse. But that's to be an encouragement to us, not a discouragement. Christians may face such things as discrimination, persecution, and even martyrdom in the days ahead. But we must not allow these problems of the present or fear of the future to rob us of our blessed hope, and that is the eminent return of Jesus Christ to remove us from this earth and take us to his Father's house. That's exciting. That's what we want to be focused on. The Lord's pattern for the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Therefore, comfort one another. Comfort one another with these words. These are critical end times that point to the eminent rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In Revelation 4, chapter 1, after this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So why then are we to be looking for the rapture? Why is that something that's important? Why do some churches look for this and others do not? Why do we as a church at Calvary Chapel look for this? Well, the main reason is because Jesus said so. And we listen to that. Matthew 24, 42, Jesus Christ says, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. He repeats this statement again in Matthew 25, 13. What did he mean by this? And what exactly should, be, should we be watching for? In order to understand these statements, we must get a little bit of, of the context of the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. In the first few verses of Matthew 24, the disciples were sort of showing off the area and the magnificence of the temple, which stood in Jerusalem at that time, of course. Jesus Jesus told them not to be too amazed by this because it would eventually be destroyed, as it was just 40 years later. 
It seems this kind of kicked the disciples back a bit because uh, they took some time to think about more deeply what Jesus said, and they came to the realization that there might be more important things in life than the physical buildings at Jerusalem that they admired so much. Perhaps this was on their mind when they came to Jesus a little later outside the city in verse 3 and said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the last times of the age? Jesus sensed a change in their attitudes and sensed a teachable moment here. What was his answer to the question? Verse 4 tells us, and Jesus answered and said to them, them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. This was likely not the answer they were hoping for at the moment or expecting. Perhaps they'd hoped that he'd give them a physical sign or even a time frame for his return. Instead, he warned them not to be deceived. In fact, he goes on to warn them again and says that if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the very elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. We know some cults that have said that, right? When we see major shifts in the political climate and see nations jockeying for position and even preparing for war, we must take note. Likewise, we should also be alert to potential biological and environmental disasters that we are told will happen in these last times. Can we even turn on the news today and not just see a list of those things I just said? In addition to spiritual deception, Christ mentions that there will be disturbing events on the world scene, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, even though these are troubling things. For all these things must come to pass, and yet the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. This indicates that along with spiritual deception, there will be political and military conflict as well as environmental disasters such as famines, pestilence, and earthquakes. From there, religious persecution will quickly follow. These won't be small localized events. In fact, verse 8, we're told, all these are just the beginning of sorrows. Things will get so bad and so widespread that it says, unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved. This time is referred to as the Great Tribulation in verse 21. Because we're warned about these widespread events, the command to watch includes to being alert to newsworthy events happening in the world around us. Well, what if we don't watch? What if we decide we're just going to just blow all this off, stick our heads in the sand, and sing Kumbaya? Well, Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 30 is a warning. It says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days of the Son of Man. They ate, we're eating. They drank, we're drinking, yeah. They married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, sold, planted, and they built. But on the day Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. Knowing this first, we are warned, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. You know, years ago, I told my mother, uh, who was coming to church with me at the time, she's since passed, and I told her, you know, Jesus is coming soon. Perhaps some of you have done that with your own relatives, friends, neighbors. 
And they say something similar to that. And I said, Mom, did you know that you just fulfilled prophecy? You're a scoffer. In the last days, scoffers will come. And when my mom was a little girl in the 40s, in the 30s and 40s, people said, Jesus is coming soon. And she said, oh, no, I've been hearing that for years. Well, Jesus is. For this they will forget, that the word of God from the heavens of old, the earth standing out of water and, uh, water and in the water, by which the world existed and perished, being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And the warning goes on, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that, the, that with the Lord one day is, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. I'm thankful for that. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we are warned to watch, and we're warned to be ready. Well, can we set the date? Perhaps we could do that tonight. Absolutely not. Those fools over the years have tried to do that. We're told to be ready. We're told, told to be looking, to be watching. But we're never told a date. I always wished that when I was in school, the teachers would have told us when a pop quiz was going to be, because they were always scared me to death. But of course, it wouldn't have been a pop quiz uh, otherwise, would it, if we'd had that warning. So we had to always be ready, always prepared. The imminent return of Christ, eminent means likely to happen at any moment, impending. And we, when we speak of the eminence of Christ's return, we mean that he could come back, of course, at any moment. There's nothing more in the biblical prophecy clock that needs to happen before Jesus comes again. We know that. Jesus spoke of his return repeatedly during his ministry, which was naturally prompted questions from his disciples. One of their questions was, when will these things happen? And Jesus responded, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So take heed, be alert, for you do not know when that appointed time will come. However, the, the Bible does say, that his return is near, and we are to wait eagerly for it. James encourages us to be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The time, we are warned, is near. Jesus taught his disciples to watch for his return. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. The command to be ready implies eminence, any moment now. Throughout the New Testament, the church is told to be ready if the disciples in the early church were expecting the soon coming of Jesus Christ, well, how much more should we be looking for that same thing? So I'm going to offer up six little signs. Uh, well, not so little, many of them. There are many signs that tell us that the time is at hand. But uh, I'm going to pick six out tonight. And uh, you can listen to those, take notes if you're a note taker. Very important sign, Micah 4.1, perhaps the most important sign of all. It says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. This is the most important sign uh, that we are eminent to the return of Christ, which is the reestablishment of the country of Israel. May the 14th, 1948, they were reestablished to their land. Aliyah, Aliyah, it's called, the return. A special term from the Hebrew Bible is used to describe this process, and it means to ascend. It was used in ancient times in reference to Jewish pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem for three biblical feasts, including, uh, feasts, including the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. 
Thus, the process of aliyah today is seen as having a spiritual significance beyond the physical act of return. Well, let's see what the Bible says about the return of Israel to their land. There are actually two returns. Isaiah 11.11 indicates there would be a day when God would raise his hand a second time to gather the children of Israel to their homeland. The first was predicted by the prophet Jeremiah to take place after Israel had been in captivity for some 70 years. And according to Ezra, happened precisely as was foretold. After 50 years of intermittent partial sovereignty in the Jewish land, they were once again dispersed after the Roman Empire in, in AD 70. And now after 2,000 years, they have returned and reestablished their sovereignty as a country. No other people in the history of the world has managed to survive two exiles, much less one that was nearly 2,000 years long. The second return is from all nations. And since 1948, Jews have returned from all over the earth. Over the past 120 years, more than 3.5 million Jews have immigrated to the land from Israel from all over the world, including Russia. From the north, south, east, and west, the literal fulfillment of God's promises. The regathering of the Jewish people to their land is depicted as God's banner to the nations in Isaiah 11:12. It says he will set up a banner for the nations and will uh, assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, a miracle. A banner was often a rallying point in military operations and was carried as a lead inf- uh, formation, but often bore the name and image of the army of God, like a banner, a flag. Using this symbolism, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah considered the ingathering as a proclamation of God's name and his character to the nations. An interesting fact, as every year Jews immigrate to Israel from the four corners of the earth, as was prophesied, last year immigration to Israel increased by 270%. Something's going on. Now, at this point, I think we should distinguish between the second coming of Christ proper and the rapture of the church. These are two different events. The second coming of Christ, when he defeats his enemies and sets up his kingdom, will not occur until after certain end time things take place, including, uh, well, the rapture, the tribulation. Uh, Revelations 6 through 18 talks of this. So therefore, the return of Christ is not imminent. We know that because the rapture hasn't taken place. We're going to be gone. The rapture could take place at any moment, that is not the second coming of Christ. We'll be caught up in the air. So another sign, along with Israel being established as a nation, I would list this as number two, is the sign of deception and disputes. Many people will claim to be the Messiah. Uh, they'll have answers for this troubled world. Maybe we just need electric cars. Maybe that'll solve it. Jesus says to take heed literally to keep our eyes on him so that we will not be fooled. In the end times, people will be crying desperately for leaders to deliver them, and they will seek mystics and religious leaders who claim to have a deeper knowledge or a better science. As wars and dissension among groups of people begin to escalate, we know it's a sign of Christ's return. The book of Revelation tells us the tribulation period is filled with war, ceaseless, unending, terrible war that will escalate until the entire world is involved. And the Bible says that we are to move As we move toward the end times, there will be constant talk of conflicts, border skirmishes, race wars, and national battles. Look what's going on with Ukraine and the threats coming out of Russia right now. The uh, cosmic clock, what they used to call the, um, oh, what was that term they used for the 
Doomsday clock, thank you very much. They say now it is the closest to midnight that it has ever been in the history of the world, just seconds from midnight. So, number three, Middle East peace plan allows for the temple to be rebuilt. This is exciting. While we won't see temple worship begin because we'll be gone, hallelujah, but the preparation for certain of these tribulation times things logically will begin before the rapture of the church because there's a lot to be involved there. There's a lot of complicated work to take place. Daniel 9.27 says, And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, seven years, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed desecration is poured out on the desolator. So we need a new temple. Well, every Jew longs for that day to see the temple rebuilt. It is in the heart of every single Jewish man and woman. Right now, we are all prepared for that. It's going to take a lot of materials and people to be able to reestablish that temple worship. So is anything being done on that? Well, yes. Look up the Temple Institute, and you'll find all kinds of fascinating things that have taken place and are taking place. 7,000 priests who can trace their origins back to Aaron, to the Levitical priesthood, have already been located and trained. Their garments have been made. The utilities for temple worship have all been made. In fact, so much so that they are even practicing. Well, you've ever gone to a restaurant and done, what do they call it, a, a kind of a fake opening where they'll practice, you know, the various procedures of that restaurant? Cold, cold opening? Soft. Soft, thank you. Soft opening. Well, in a sense, you could say that's what they're doing for the temple right now because temple worship is so complex and so detailed and the priests so want to get it perfect that they're practicing, literally practicing, the temple services uh, even now in preparation for the day when they'll have their temple. Now, we have a short video, and I haven't had time to look at it all, so we may not look at it all, but I want to tell you some of the things and show you what they're doing. And this is right out of the Temple Institute. These are not Christians. They're not Messianic Jews. They're, uh, they're descendants of Aaron that are prepared to begin Levitical worship again. And, of course, one of the things we need for that is a red heifer to cleanse the temple. And that heifer has to be born in Israel. So some uh, folks that have helped Israel do that have bred the red heifer outside Israel, then brought uh, some of those heifers in so that they can now breed in Israel. Let's see if, can you put that video up and see what we've got? Welcome to Our Jewish Roots. In today's special program, we look at recent preparations by rabbis in Israel to ready the building of the Third Temple. Join us now for an inside look. We are so glad you've joined us today. I am David Hart. I'm Kirsten Hart. I am Jeffrey Seif. I've got something in my heart, in my head, and in my hand. Press pass. Not trespass, press pass. The reason why I mention that is today we're bringing you some news. Breaking news. You're not going to get it in mainstream news, but it's biblical news because there's stuff happening in Israel and our Jewish roots wants to bring it to you. And there's stuff happening in America that Israel is interested in about. Yes? Oh, yes. I want one of those cards. But you know what? I don't have that card, but I have the knowledge of what you're about to bring. Hang on to your hats. This is going to be a roller coaster ride. Temple preparations. 
For decades, an organization in Israel called the Temple Institute has been searching the globe for pure red heifer in order to initiate the building of the third temple and purify the Levitical priesthood to officiate therein. Numbers chapter 19 outlines the importance of the ashes of the red heifer in ceremonial Hebraic worship, but the qualifications for that red cow are extremely precise, uh, very elusive in nature, the particulars of which are found in Jewish rabbinical literature. Not only must the cow be completely red, but it cannot contain even two different colored hairs, no visual blemish, as well as many other difficult criteria. To help narrow down the search internationally, the Jewish Christian organization B'nai Israel led a small group of Israeli rabbis to Rockwall, Texas, if you can imagine that. Here the rabbis believe they finally found several suitable candidates around one year of age. Not one, but several. Amazing. I got the opportunity to speak with the owner of the Red Heifer Ranch, Ty Davenport, to find out how he feels on the matter. Ty, you have a 1,400-acre ranch here. Yes, sir. And you have Jewish scholars from Israel, from Jerusalem, coming to your ranch to look at your cattle. Can you tell the story about how this one, just fortuitously, accidentally, providentially, never was tagged, so there's never a blemish? Yes, we, we, we literally tagged the cows the first day they're born or the second day, because after that, they get too fast to catch. We gotta rope them, otherwise we can go up there that first couple of days and get hold of the calf and tag it. And we like to, we, that way we'll know who the mama was, and we give it the same num number as the mother. Well, we had gone and already tagged the calves that day, and, and everything I have is tagged. And like I said earlier, once it has a hole in its ear, that's a blemish, right. and it disqualifies it. So I told them, I don't have what you want. But we went ahead and looked anyways through the, through the ranch and drove all across the ranch looking. And we just about given up and made one last look. Out of the woods comes this mama with her newborn just baby. So happened. Now, when you said to them, I don't think you have, we're talking about the, the, the scholars from the Temple Institute. Yes, sir. Now, for those of you who don't know, and if you've been to Israel, uh, these are Hasidic Jews that are all about building the accoutrements uh, that go along with the temple that's going to be raised, uh, raised up believed at the end of days a temple is going to be rebuilt and uh, the, a, a number of the, the furnishings have already been built but they need to dedicate it with a sacrificial animal and they believe that you may have the one and they're all about inspecting that to find out yeah I think so that's good gentlemen let's go ahead and bring the lights back up so that gives you an idea of all the preparations and there are many uh, that must take place from the uh, vestments, the garments, the uh, tools uh, to do the worship, the red heifer to purify the temple. Uh, the red heifer, uh, as they'll go on to say, has been, that's perfect, has been sent to Israel to breed there because it has to be bred uh, on Israeli soil uh, to cleanse the temple. So what remains uh, to, to build that temple? By the way, the blueprints have been drawn up, materials are being gathered, 
I strongly suspect that all the materials have been gathered. And, um, uh, well, they need to have possession of the Temple Mount, which they do technically. But uh, after the rapture of the church, after we're gone, this is going to take place. And uh, that is an amazing thing. Well, here's another sign. Increasing pangs. Number four here. Revelation 12, 1, uh, 2, and 5. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And she bore a male child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. When Jesus was asked what would signal his return in the end of the age, he listed, uh, said to list for a number, look for a number of signs. But one of those signs was the appearance of earthquakes. Now, what does that mean? After all, earthquakes have been part of uh, human life since Adam and Eve. They aren't rare. In fact, the Bible lists a number of earthquakes in Amos and Samuel and even in Acts. It seems that the church ends with the rapture, chaos, and destruction. These things will unfold on the earth at a magnitude that we couldn't imagine. And of course, it does include earthquakes and volcanic activity and terrors in the heavens, wars and signs and sun, moon and stars. But we also know in preparation for this that hurricanes and storms are getting stronger than ever. Um, of course, we just had the terrible earthquake in Syria at 7.8, it was listed. Um, it's likely to have uh, many more people will find have been injured or killed. Right now, as of a, a week ago, the death toll in Syria was hitting right around 41,000 people had died. What a tragedy. And while these things are not in the tribulation period yet, they are things that will advance ahead of that tribulation period. Earthquakes and hurricanes and all of those things will begin to precipitate the time of tribulation before the tribulation begins. Acts 2, 19 through 21 says, And I will show wonders in heavens and signs on earth below, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. After we've been taken safely up into heaven, these upcoming earthquakes will become so severe and widespread as to trigger volcanic events, eruptions, tsunamis. Who knows what will happen in that time? So here's another mark. How about this one? The taking of the mark, 666, right? Now, for those of you that wondered, and I hope no one here did, the uh, taking of a COVID vaccination, if you did that, um, is not the mark of the beast. No one's going to accidentally get the mark of the beast. You'll know what you're doing. Uh, in the event that someone takes that, all hope for redemption is gone, and God will not sneak in a way for people to perish, and the devil doesn't have that ability. But there are signs that that very thing may uh, radiate off such things as a COVID shot. It could kind of be a precursor in a way. Look at some of the news events. In September 2019, uh, a summit was hosted by the ID2020 Alliance. This is worth watching. Composed of significant partners from around the world. Microsoft, the Global Alliance of Vaccines and Immunizations, 
the Rockefeller Foundation, and a growing number of partners from international governments, universities, and humanitarian relief programs. It was sponsored by the UN Office of Information Communications Technology, there's a name, the UN Re Relief Agency, the International Telecommunication UN Union, and uh, its, uh, its uh, goal was to accelerate technology to ensure that everyone in need has access to a unique digital identity as part of their basic human right. Did you hear that? Everyone has the need to access a unique digital identity as a part of their basic human right. Now, up to now, international digital identification would have been unheard of and would not really have been possible. But with an equal drive to get everyone vaccinated, this global alliance and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation play a pivotal role in ID 2020 mission. During the summit, it was announced the latest program is, quote, recognizing the opportunity for immunization to serve as a platform for digital identity. This program leverages existing vac vaccination and birth registration offer operations to offer newborns a persistent and portable biometrically linked digital identity. Sure sounds like the mark of the beast. With an estimated 89% of the children without identification around the world, these areas are perfect targets to test the so-called new model of ID. Could be, we don't know. Finally, the great falling away. That's also predicted in prophecy. The Greek word translated rebellion or falling away, apostisa, which, from which we get the English word apostasy, refers to a general defection from the true word of God the Bible, and the Christian faith. Every age has its defectors, but the falling away at end times will be a complete and worldwide event. The whole planet will be in rebellion against God and his Christ. Every coup requires a leader, and in this global apostasy, that person will be the Antichrist. We know this is going to take place after the church has departed from the earth or raptured. But Jesus warned his disciples concerning the final days in Matthew 24. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of this increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. These are the characteristics of the great apostasy at the end of times. Well, we would think that hasn't happened here, but I think we've had our little taste of apostasy. When COVID first broke out, well, we thought those end times, that apostasy, that great falling away, would be an event where they would be chasing us through the streets with guns and threatening our lives if we served Christ, if we went to church, right? Instead, a third of this church fell away because of a cold. How tragic. And I'm not saying that COVID wasn't dangerous and didn't have precautions that should be taken. But to this day, a good part of this church just stopped coming. And of all the local churches... In some cases, more than half, up to two-thirds of people said they will never go back to church again for fear of COVID. Praise God, the Lord has replaced many of those members in those other churches in here with people who have newly come to Christ. What about our local churches here, just in Orange? Let's just narrow it down here. Well, as you know, there's been a prayer event recently for our school board. And the school board in Orange... Uh, was assembled to pray for Ed recently, who was one of the members of the school board. And uh, there is a push there with the school board to bring up uh, critical race theory, to teach the children that they can change their sexual orientation if they wish, and to promote abortion 
among children as, as young as kindergarten. Of the 56 Christian churches in Orange, just the city of Orange, there's 56 churches that claim the, the title Christian. Those churches were all contacted to see if they would join in this prayer meeting so that these movements against our little ones could be prevented. Of the 56 churches that were contacted, 46 asked their names to be removed from that list. They did not want to be identified as being against abortion or critical race theory or sexual orientation. They didn't want to be a part of that. Only 10 churches were willing to be named as part of this prayer meeting to pray for our children. In Orange, we would think we would be exempt from that. We are not, brothers and sisters. So the great falling away, it's happened right here in town, in Orange. So those are a few signs that warn us of the end. So what do we do? Well, we're supposed to comfort one another with these words, that Jesus is soon coming, that this world is not our home, and that God is going to take his church out of this. We want to pray for revival. That's what we do. We comfort each other and we pray for revival. And of course, we've just recently heard of a great revival that's going on in some parts of our country. Um, and of course, we would love to be a part of that, would we not? If uh, you turn to Google and look at the news article of this church that is experienced, it's at a college, and that has begun to spread to other colleges. It could spread here as well. So what do we do to get ready for a revival? Well, revival isn't a thing that we force. It's not from us. It's not something that, uh, that a uh, musical event can precipitate. You know, people look back in the Jesus days of Calvary Chapel and they said, oh, it was the rock and roll. Well, I was there, it wasn't the rock and roll. In fact, the early days of, of the Christian music was just somebody with a guitar or somebody singing a cappella. It was really precipitated by a group of people who thought they could have uh, success and satisfaction in life by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was, was the hippies. And I was among them. My hair wasn't quite as long as theirs, but it was longer. And I had a beard that looked like ZZ Top. And they had gone through the Vietnam War and the times of rebellion and have sought uh, a better answer. And they found that answer didn't fulfill the need they had. And so they came in mass to churches. And many churches rejected them back then, but a few accepted them. And then from that, the Jesus revolution began. Brothers and sisters, we need another revolution. So how does it begin? Well, first of all, we must submit to the possibility of revival, I think. In Psalms 85, it talks six times about our need for revival and the possibility of revival coming again. Do you believe it could come again? I do. We must also recognize the source of revival. It's not rock and roll music, and our worship music is here is great, don't get me wrong. And the, the rock and roll Christian music that came out of the early Jesus people, that's fine too, but it's not the source of revival. God help us if we think that's true. No, it's not smoke on the stage. It's not laser lights, right? In uh, Psalm 62, it says that revival comes from God. It's not worked up, it's sent down. And therefore, our eyes must not be upon men, method, churches, or denominations, but upon him alone. Someone said, when we look to man, we only get what man can do. When we look to money, we get what money can do. When we look to organization, we get what that can do. And when we look to dominations, we get to what a denomination can do. But when we look to God, we get what he can do. We must employ the means for securing revival. Well, Second Chronicles 7.14 says it. 
this is really the source. If my people, you know the verse, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. That's the source. That's the answer right there. And in this college that's experiencing revival, it all began with one man confessing his sin. And people lingered longer and began to confess theirs. What did they do? If you look at the reports, it was as simple as that. People began to humble themselves and pray. Thus, if revival is to come, you and I have to be ready to receive the full blessing of God and to be channels through whom God can work. So what are obstacles to revival? Well, of course, we know what the greatest obstacle is. It's sin. Are you right with God? Is there sin in your life? Are you living in disobedience to God? Are you mostly in? You know, anyone that says they're mostly into Jesus or they're working their way to know God or to become a Christian are miles and miles away. You're all in or you're all out. Certainly, you're going to grow in Christ. We all have grown. I'm not the same man I was in 1975. I'm sure none of you are if you're old enough to, be, to claim that. But there is a moment at which we're born again. We're saved. That moment begins a transformation process in it, does it not? Many years ago, D.L. Moody heard another man say, the world has yet to see what God will do with one man who is fully surrendered to him. And Moody said, by God's grace, I'll be that man. Will you be another? Will you be that man and woman who will be that man, that man or woman for God? Will you begin now to pray the same prayer for your church that the world may see what God can do? what the world has already begun to do through this small Christian college. That's the Ashbury Revival that I've been referring to. Ashbury University is a private university, and chapel attendance is mandatory for students on certain days. Just recently, on Wednesday, February the 8th this year, a handful of students remained in the chapel following a regularly scheduled service. Student body president Allison Prefster was one of them, and he told Tucker Carlson that a fellow student decided to openly confess some of his sins to a small group. Immediately, the atmosphere changed. And I quote, for seemingly no reason at first on this Wednesday the 8th, it didn't end. That's kind of on the logistical side of what's been going on. On the deeper side, what's been happening here since Wednesday is there's a young army of believers who are rising to claim Christianity the faith as their own, as a young generation and a free generation, and that's why people cannot get enough. That meeting has not yet ended. It goes on to this moment. They're still meeting in that church and has now spread to other colleges. That's amazing. I remember that early revival of the 70s. We were disillusioned with what the world, our culture couldn't satisfy. Today it's a time for us old and young to realize what the world couldn't do then and still can't do. We need to acknowledge what our great God and Savior wishes for, perhaps one more time. We must pray. We must pray for revival, and it begins with us, our own homes, what you do with your time, what you do with your resources. Will you submit completely and wholly to God? Will you, will we repent? Jesus summed up life lived for God when, when a teacher of the law asked him the most important of the commandments. And Jesus replied, Oh, hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
And this, my dear brothers and sisters, is the basis for revival. We need to repent and humble ourselves and become the last of one great wave before the Lord gathers up his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, O Lord, your Holy Spirit to fall upon this little church, upon this community, that one great last wind would spread apart this country, and that may it start here with us in our hearts, that we might be used in one worthwhile endeavor, that is to prepare your people for the soon rapture, taking up of your church. Oh, Lord, we humble ourselves before you tonight. I pray you would speak to hearts and that you would bring us to that humility of leaving all of our lives to you to do whatever you wish us to do and be submitted to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I just pray as your church is gathered here tonight that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us in a fresh way. That in humility and repentance we would come to you. And by your power and by your will, you would revive this church and this people that in these last days we would proclaim your name. As we leave here tonight, fill us and empower us to lay aside anything, any weight, anything that would hinder and encumber our walk with you, that that one last revival might begin in us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer for anything tonight, come on up here. We'll be happy to pray for you. God bless you all.